Well, good morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 again. We're going through Genesis 1 through 11 in these first uh, couple chapters because they're so important. Uh, we're going to do several sermons in them, and then it'll pick up speed once we get into Genesis 4. Uh, I'm actually going to read at a Psalm 19 just to start us off to kind of uh, bring us into alignment as to what the bigger picture is, and then get specifically into uh, the text. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2, great one to remember, says this. I believe I've read it before. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is God's Word. Now, I'll be preaching through Genesis 1, uh, 3 through 25, which may surprise you to know it's the same text I preached last week. Um, and one thing to be sure of, and, and I'm sure of it, that um, 10 sermons probably would be insufficient to uh, explain and understand what is the most explicit description of the beginning of the universe and so uh, there are multiple things we can say about it. Last week we talked about the Word of God, and this week we're going to talk about the order of God. Um, the first chapters of Genesis, because they do talk about the origins of the universe, are uh, probably some of the most divisive uh, words in Genesis, if not all of Scripture. And by divisive, I mean it's caused division. Well, men have divided. The Word didn't cause it. Men have divided, both believers and believers have, are divided over this passage uh, or these words. Uh, unbelievers and believers are divided over these words, uh, and therefore they're very important for us to spend a lot of time on. Uh, because the God of the Bible, as we saw in Psalm 19 that I read here, uh, reveals that spiritual things about himself are seen in physical, in the physical world. Um, that fact has created a, a general antagonism between what I'll call religion and, and science, or faith and science. Um, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, which is a passage we preached uh, months ago, Jesus said, uh, we are to love the Lord your God with all of our heart and our soul and with all of your mind. But mainstream scientific community probably believes that Christians have failed to do that last part. Um, love the Lord your God with all your mind. In truth, uh, if we're honest, there's a lot of Christians that have probably fed that stereotype. So there's this tension between science and religion, and it has wrongly been characterized as a tension between the intellectuals and the idiots. I'll let you determine who's in what category, but you can probably guess. Uh, it's the distinction between people who live in reality and deal with, with, with what is real and those who uh, live in fairyland and deal with things like Santa Claus and stuff that's not real. That's kind of the tension in, in the most antagonistic way that can be uh, described. And we see it, in, I was formerly an English teacher, and uh, I would always teach a, a play called Inherit the Wind, which you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, and that old play uh, is a pretty good picture of, of, the, of the issue or the distinction where you have uh, reasonable, scientific, you know, martyrs 
who are being attacked irrationally by religious nuts. And so that's kind of the picture that our culture puts forward of this tension. And unfortunately, um, the church has not always responded well to that tension. And um, in truth, the, the tension that exists and the problems with trying to resolve it have um, created or resulted in the denial of God by both camps. And what's happened, instead of, of turning to the God is there, I think both have made, uh, not always, but often gods out of the gifts God gave us. Um, some will make an idol out of science and then demonize the gift of Scripture. And then others will make an idol out of Scripture and demonize what I believe is the gift of science. They're not intended to be antagonistic. They weren't intended to be enemies. Both are, I believe, given by God in order to complement one another in fulfilling the one God-given purpose for all of creation, which is to reveal the glories of God. So, if you think about it, they're supposed to work together. Religion is supposed to reveal to us and does that creation was given, as we see in Psalm 19 here, to display the glory of God. And science was supposed to affirm that and reveal just how glorious that God is. And it does. It doesn't take much more than a, a few discovery uh, type of documentaries to reveal how amazing creation is and the glories uh, therein. Now, what I believe in kind of the, the whole theme, if you will, of what I'm going to say today is that creation, as we see in Romans 1 and we see in Psalm 19 here, does teach us about our Creator. And as we look at our Creator and His beauty and particularly His holiness, He reveals to us and teaches us about our recreation about our brokenness and the need for restoration. And so it goes basically from creation to creator to recreation. And that's where we'll spend our time. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about creation. And as we look at the first uh, chapters here, we have this list, which I read last week, which I will go over um, in a different way, of days. There's a series of days that are, um, are, are listed in terms of describing how the world came to be. And there is strong disagreement and very diverse disagreement about the age of the universe and particularly the number of days that it took. And it's interesting to note that historically the Hebrews um, actually were a little bothered, irritated, troubled by the fact that it took God six days. Like, why would it take God six days to do this? It was like weird. Well, today we're on the other side of that. Most people are like, only six days? And so this argument has been going back and forth uh, for a long time, and this tension has existed for a long time. Um, and trying to navigate this tension, Christians uh, often make two mistakes, one of two mistakes. When they, when they hear about this tension that, for example, science will say that the earth is uh, anywhere between 11 and 17, 14 and 17 billion years old, or the world is, the universe is, and then Creationists, for lack of a better description, will say it's six to 10,000 years old. That's a pretty big distinction, right? That's a pretty big tension to navigate. And what happens, Christians in an effort to try and marry that will make one of two mistakes. One, they will accommodate science too much. 
uh, or two, they'll ignore it altogether, uh, which are both uh, mistakes, I believe, um, in approaching it. But we can't ignore the fact that the first chapter does give us an orderly account of six days, six periods, and over the years there's been different interpretations of these 31 different verses. And so I'm going to give you a few uh, just to kind of set the stage to understand where, um, where Christians can fall and get stuck and where I want us to focus. That when you open up Genesis chapter 1, I want your minds to think of something particular and not get stuck in some of the particulars, if that makes sense. So I'm going to give you some views. Uh, I did the same thing when I went over end time stuff, and, and I'll try to qualify some of them and, um, and just kind of describe them as, as generally as I can. So I think I list them up on there. So the first one is historic creationism. Do we have that slide? Okay, historic creationism. And so I'm going to give you like shotgun, really quick summary, and I may blog on more explanations and why I think that there's one that's right in all of these, but we'll, we'll deal with that later. Uh, historic creation is a, is a view that basically does believe God created out of nothing, but in Genesis 1.1, the Hebrew word for beginning can have um, and can mean an indefinite time period. You can, you can understand that word to mean that. And so this position takes the view that um, the 1-1 one, one can describe uh, a period of days or a period of years. It could be a long time. And so uh, verse 2, they believe, actually begins with God making the land inhabitable. And so an uninhabitable land mass of some kind, blob called the earth, could have, been exist, could have existed for billions of years, but it did only take six years to cultivate that mass, if that makes sense. And that's generally an old earth kind of view. I say generally because you could have a young earth view in that, depending on how long you think that period is, okay? So there's one. Creationism uh, is uh, the view that God created the whole universe in six literal 24-hour days. This is what I hold personally, uh, but it usually is the accompanied with a young earth mentality, which is six to 10,000 years old, depending on how you view it, okay? So the gap theory is this theory that became popular in the 20th century, uh, which is the 1900s. It believes that there's a gap similar to the historic creationists between 1-1 and 1-2, but they have a unique perspective, and this is um, sidebar, not in scripture, and what it says is essentially uh, some kind of catastrophe happened between 1-1 and 1-2 to create a dark world. That basically God created the world, it became dark somehow, and usually the uh, inference or, or implication, I should say, is that Satan's fall made the world dark. And so what you have really in 1-2 is a recreation or a second creation of the first creation that became dark. Okay? We'll move on to the next one. Fourth one is this framework theory, and I'm not going to name everyone because there's several others, but I'm just giving some of the ones that you may uh, come familiar with should you study it on your own. And this is a view that the creation narrative of Genesis is basically, to summarize it, read more figuratively than literally. And essentially God is not expressing any kind of really literal sequence of events as much as he's making a metamorphic, metamorph, metaphorical, I was an English teacher, I do know how to speak, 
but he is making a, a, an extended metaphor to emphasize different things. It could be theological, it can be really spiritual, whatever, but it's just kind of like this framework, these ideas of these sequence, but not really a literal sequence. The problem with that view is that where does the metaphor stop? Um, and if it just stops with creation, or if it continues into Adam and Eve or metaphors too, they're not really our first parents who really sinned, and the, the garden was really a metaphor, and so it kind of continues until someone arbitrarily says, no, it stops here. And the last one I'll, I'll deal with, there's others um, that um, I may address on, on the blog, but what is the day-age theory? And in this view, basically, they take these six days and uh, say that God did create in six literal periods of time, but those periods of time can be days or years. They don't have to be literal 24-hour days. Uh, it could be billions of years in day one, billions of years in day two, and they have to obviously do a little bit of um, we'll call theological yoga in order to make that work, I think. But we'll leave it there. So what you have, though, is a tension, really, that's trying to be resolved between Science says the earth is really old, and, and um, the Bible says the earth is really young. That, that's the tension that, that we, we are trying to navigate. And uh, I personally believe, as I said, there's a literal 24-hour days, but I will say really quick, there was an interesting theory of which if you read, just like I read, it's the kind of thing you read. It was written by an astrophysicist who used to be an atheist and became a Christian. So right there you go, astrophysicist way up here, I, you know, the kind of thing you read like three times, you may understand it, try to repeat it to somebody else, you're lost. She's brilliant, uh, and she talked about actually her acceptance of Genesis as literal 24-hour days before she accepted Christ. Astrophysicist. And the key to it for her was to say, well, what if old earth and young earth are both right? And you go, oh, come on. And she goes, yeah, and she started talking about and explains, and I'll again post it because it's amazing but you have to take time to go through the 125 slides she used to explain it. It's awesome. She talks about the theory of relativity in Einstein. And the idea of how, uh, from our perspective, from God's perspective, where time began, and it gets very complicated. And if you want to understand maybe a hint of what she's talking about, go see the movie Interstellar, and you will get it. A little bit, right? The Interstellar is this idea, very quickly, uh, there's at one point, gravity and velocity affect time, and time can go slower or faster based on that. And at one point in this grand movie, uh, George Clooney and this other, is it not George Clooney? Who's the guy? Matthew McConaughey. That's right. They're all the same, right? Matthew McConaughey and this other girl who I think was Catwoman at one point, she, they both go down to a planet and they're like, we're going to be gone for an hour, but every hour we're gone, it's going to be seven years. They end up being gone for a little bit longer than an hour and they come back, it's been 25 years and the guy in the spaceship has aged quite a bit. And you're like, wow, how did that happen? It was only two hours, right? It was only six days. I don't know. It's crazy theory, but it's pretty awesome to see how a Christian can cause us to maybe think a little bit differently and still go, there are literal 24-hour days. The earth is only six days old. But the question is, does it really matter? And I would say, yes, it does. And no, it doesn't. This is the kind of theology that I would refer to as uh, generally open-handed um, versus a close-handed theology where I believe Christians can disagree. Um, open-handed, they can disagree and still um, not lose the essentials necessary to salvation. At the same time, there are those theories, some I've read and others I have not, that are simply untenable biblically. 
they're just, they don't work biblically. And is, as with all theology, what you're going to believe about the Bible and namely about God is going to shape and influence your behavior and your perceptions of life. And so, what you believe about how the time, end times or time is going to end and how you believe it began does affect you even uh, indirectly in how you perceive the world and how you live in the world. And with regard to how you understand this chapter in Genesis, some positions will lead to a perverted view of God, His world, uh, and our lives, and therefore influence what you do. And I think the, the best thing to ask, like, what's it, to ask, like, why this might matter is to ask what's at stake. And so here are the things I think that are at stake in terms of your ignorance, our ignorance, and understanding this. Number one is the veracity of Scripture. Veracity is just a big fancy word for truthfulness. Is God's word true? Is it trustworthy? Is what is written supposed to be written? Is it written to theologians or is it written to simple people without educations? It's interesting how much we approach the Bible and we fail to remember that it wasn't written to theologians. It wasn't even written to educated people, largely. Not to say that they were dumb, but they're not the scholars that we believe we have to be in order to understand. So the truthfulness of Scripture. Secondly is the historicity of Scripture. Did what was written actually happen? Is Adam a real person? Is Eve a real person? Was it really a garden? Those are important. But it all comes back to the major one, which was the authority of Scripture. And is Scripture going to be the governing authority of your life? And when science meets Scripture, what do you do? And we have to be careful. We don't just go, oh, you just go with Scripture every time. Because remember, there were those who were Bible-believing, Scripture-holding Christians who believed the earth didn't rotate at all until science came and said, no, it does. And so Scripture and science are meant to complement one another. And they're not meant to be antagonistic. But the authority of Scripture is at stake. But we have to be careful being alarmist, and this is what I mean. There are godly, respected, biblical scholars who I love and appreciate who I disagree with. And there are men who honestly may be right, as I would distinguish rightness in terms of interpretation with this particular text, there are men who may be right about their view of Genesis and honestly off the rails theologically elsewhere. And then there are men who I would argue are wrong in their view of this particular passage and yet are theologically dead on elsewhere. And so your position on a particular place doesn't A doesn't always equal Z in terms of its badness or perversion of God's Word. So we have to be careful. That doesn't give us an excuse not to know, but it does give us, I think, some hopefully comfort that this may be one of the things that is a little mysterious, and there are godly men whom we will see in heaven who disagree. That said, we need to ask ourselves what creation does teach us about our Creator. What I mean is instead of spending too much time, I don't say any time, instead of too much time trying to get the Bible and science to be BFFs forever. Christians 
should proceed with a couple convictions, and that is one day that Scripture and science will not be antagonistic. One day it will make sense, whether it be tomorrow or when eternity, it will all work together because they are both gifts from the Lord. But as we study Scripture now, we need to be very mindful of the primary purpose of Scripture. That the primary purpose of even this narrative is not history or science, though it has science and has history. The primary purpose is theological. It is written to reveal something about God who is there. And oftentimes, Christians get stuck arguing over the particulars of what is going on in these things and forgetting the bigger picture. We don't ignore the particulars, but we don't lose sight of the bigger picture that this is about God, given to reveal something about God, right? I talked about more than once, as we approach Scripture, we're all too often going for the wrong thing. We're trying to get perfect understanding of who we are and our situation and this problem we got to solve and how to do whatever, as opposed to going it expecting for God to reveal Himself to us. Now, instead of arguing over the age of rocks, which is a fun argument, I would ask that we focus on whom Bible describes as the rock of ages and ask ourselves what each day reveals about our God. And so I want to go through the days and just kind of go, what does each day reveal about the God that we worship? If nothing else, he's ordered. He didn't have to lay it out systematically like this, but he did, and I think so, with the intention of revealing something about himself. So, let's start with day one, which is in verse one, two to five. If you have, you open to Genesis, here's what it says. On day one, God creates light. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God reveals himself to be a God who enlightens. The Bible says in other places that God is light. And the entrance of light into what is a darkness is akin to the entrance of God's presence into chaos. And the chaos of creation is brought into order and made beautiful and readied for life by the presence of our good God. We have a God who enlightens, God who awakens, God who says there's going to be order in the midst of this chaos. We get to day two. And I know that you may not think of creation this way if I'm trying to change the way maybe we typically read it. It says on day two, God separates space and sky, creating atmosphere. In verse 6, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. You see him stretching it out. He separates the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And you could go, What does that tell us about God? He wants us to breathe. No, it's a little too simplistic. I believe we worship a God. Think about this who separates, who distinguishes. There is an order to things, and that order includes, in the most positive of ways, because it's used negatively, that order includes discrimination between things that are similar in nature but different in purpose. 
equality does not mean sameness. And difference does not diminish value. Equality does not mean sameness, and difference does not diminish value. And that becomes incredibly important when he starts to create men and women who are very similar, but different. Who are equal, but not the same. Right? And so you see, we have a God who separates, God who distinguishes, God who distinguishes animals and creatures from mankind. Day three, God organizes the land and the seas, and he creates plants and trees with seed, fruit and seed, I should say. Verse nine says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. This is my favorite one. So God takes the water and says, here are your boundaries. What do we learn about that? We learn that we have a God who sets limits for his creation. Who sets boundaries for his creation. God tells the land where to rise and the waters where to stop. And we learn that creation is not free to function and flow and do whatever it pleases, it is directed and governed and restrained by the Lord. He is the one that sets the boundaries. He is the one that sets the limits. And we often think of creation as plants and sea and all these things. God is a God who limits us. We are creation. We have limits. It's best for us to understand what those limits are so we don't get it frustrated more so that we don't do something that's destructive. That's no more evident than when a river overflows its boundaries or a sea causes a tsunami onto land. You kind of go, that's not the way things are supposed to be. You're right, because the creation itself was broken and also groans for redemption. On day four, God creates the sun and moon and stars, he says, for signs and for seasons. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night. Let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. What do we learn by that? Well, without God putting the signs in the heavens for seasons, for time, for all these things, men would be lost. They wouldn't know where to go or when to go. And so God is a God who does what? He guides. He directs. The farmers know when to plant, when not to plant. The sailors know when to turn left, when to turn right. He is a God who is involved, a God who is giving direction for our plans on the earth, who is influencing even our work in the earth, who even numbers the days of our lives on earth. Organized. On day five, We see God creates life in the sea and air and he blesses them in order to reproduce and create life himself. So God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And I really believe, um, physically speaking, because we are speaking about creation and I will get to the spiritual, but we worship a God who blesses and he blesses both the believer and the non-believer. He blesses the world. And he blesses the world 
with good things. And he blesses the world because he enjoys blessing the world. We're talking about the joy God takes in feeding the birds and clothing the flowers to make them look beautiful and watching the sunrise come up. Proverbs 8 records that God rejoiced and delighted in all that he created when he created. It even says that the word, I believe, in the, in the Hebrew speaks about him frolicking. Wisdom possessed him and he frolicked and enjoyed as he looked upon his creation and he blessed and he's like, this is awesome. God is not some cold scientist or, or architect just building and making sure it's perfect, though it is perfect. He's an artist who's enjoying as he makes and he blesses and he wants us to enjoy his creation. When we talk about a God who rests, we'll talk about the Sabbath and our failure to enjoy what he has given us. But then lastly, in the passage I haven't read, but we will press into deeply next week, on day six, he creates the land creatures, beasts, reptiles, livestock, and then finally, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. And in verse 26, he said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let have him dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what does this reveal about God? Well, we worship a God who in, puts his likeness upon men. We must not forget what the purpose of all creation is for God to be glorified. And so he glorifies himself in creation of all these things, of inanimate life and then of animate life, and most particularly and most especially and most uniquely in men and women who together display the likeness of God. That God glorifies himself through creation. And he does so in a special way through the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Now, we see much that God reveals about himself. And we should know what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where everything goes bad. Where God creates this world and he says it's good, and it's awesome. And then men rebel. And what you see is the unraveling of creation. And if you look at the days, it basically goes backwards. Men decided to reject their Creator, to reject His Word, and they believed the lie that says you'll be like God. They already were. They were made in the likeness of God. They loved the darkness more than they loved the light. They began to blur the various distinctions of our uniqueness, right? The separation. And what look at our culture today, what's happening? Definitions have been thrown up in the air. Men and women, ah, it's all the same. If we're going to be equal, we're going to be the same. Marriages are the same. And the separation and the discrimination and the distinction that God built into creation is suddenly just blurred. And men begin to blow through the God-given limitations. And we see a, a culture of indulgence. Indulgence in sexuality. Indulgence in food. Indulgence in alcohol. Indulgence in everything. When God said, no, you were supposed to enjoy my gifts like this. Instead of recognizing the signs that God gave them to guide them, what happens? Men begin to worship them. 
And they begin to experience the very natural consequence of rejecting God, which is cursing rather than blessing. And God, God no longer enjoys His creation. He's grieved by it. Essentially, what they chose and where it all began was to pursue their own glory and instead of thanking the one who had created them, they sought to receive worship themselves. So apart from God, what happened? It all unraveled. Men became darkened. Men became lost. Men became indulgent. Men became cursed. And men began to be focused only on themselves. Self-dependent, self-centered, self-focused, self-indulgent. Add any self you want in there. And yet, we teach people, you should have more self-esteem. Which, if you look in the dictionary, is pride. And so I wonder if we could look at these days, and instead of, of which, again, is a fine discussion and a fine argument, instead of st getting stuck on how this all worked and how the world came about, what is this revealing about God? And then ask ourselves, what this reveals about my own redemption? Now, why would I ever get to redemption from the seven days of creation? Well, I believe just as we need to move away from anthropology to theology, we need to take God's revelation and ask how it applies to us. And as I said in the beginning, creation teaches us about our Creator, and our Creator wants to teach us about our recreation. Without Christ, Without Christ in your life, life is disordered and chaotic. More than that, it is dark, it is uncertain, it is full of despair. But in Christ, what do we, what kind of language is used as Paul talks about the power of redemption in 2 Corinthians 5.17? What does he say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and being in Christ is trusting the person, life, death, work of Jesus Christ for your salvation and not your own. For anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. What? The old, broken, run down, unraveled creation that God made could, it broke because of sin. The new has come. And I believe, much like he ordered the first creation, God orders our second creation the same way. And it begins in the same way that creation began. If you read John 1, you'll see it, it lays it out just like Genesis. It says, in the beginning, same words, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was what? The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, similar to day one, has not, will not ever overcome it. And so as we consider viewing uh, the recreation of someone who becomes a Christian, this is how it happens. And your understanding of this, I believe, will really create in you a greater depth of, I don't want to say spirituality, but spiritual joy when I think we understand this. Like day one, our creation begins when the light of God through Jesus Christ comes into our darkness. That is what Jesus did. 
He was the creator, humbled himself off his throne, entered into our darkness, and by grace made we who were chaotic, dead, dark, alive. This is not a decision any more than it was a decision for the world to be enlightened. A blind man doesn't suddenly say, I want to see. We don't invite the light of God into our lives. I hope you know that. The light interrupts, comes in, uninvited, interrupts in the most glorious way and awakens us to see. What did Paul say right before he said, Behold, our new creation? He said, Once I considered all things according to the flesh, and now I don't. I see. And as that light begins to really shine in you, you get like day two. You realize that you have been called out of the darkness. You have been separated from the world even as you live in it. There's been a distinction made. We are to be a different people. And this is not like what we ought to do. This is the desires that are birthed in you. I am to live differently. I see differently. I love differently. I hope differently. There is a distinction in how I see the world and how I live in the world. And like day three, we begin to see and understand God's restrictions and His limitations very differently. We no longer rebel against God's limitations. On the contrary, we embrace His boundaries as the loving boundaries of a loving Father. And we take it even more personally. We begin to understand that the boundaries He's given us are what He's given us. That all that we have and all that we don't have is a gift from God. That's hard to believe when what you see, what you have, is in your eyes disappointing. But the boundaries of the family you've been put in, the marriage you are in, the job you are in, the home you are in, the time you are in, the state you are in, the church you are in, that is all given by God. He has put those limitations on you. And all that I have, all that I have is to be used for His glory. My time, my treasure, my talent, as a good friend said, our tragedy as well. Used for His glory. He has put those boundaries on us. And like day four, we begin to see that He doesn't just leave me alone. God actually directs me. I'm no longer lost. I actually know how to walk, how to live. He guides me more than the suns and the planets and the stars. He gives me the Holy Spirit who teaches me and comforts me and restrains me and reminds me what life is all about. And I think some good analogies are like a sundial that is incredibly dependent upon the sun. I depend upon the Spirit to help me discern the times. And like a sailor who is dependent upon the stars, I depend on the Spirit for direction. If I don't have the stars, I will steer the boat, but I won't know where I'm going. And like a farmer who depends upon the seasons, I depend upon the Spirit to know when to work, how to work, and when not to work, and when to rest. The Spirit guides me. And the last couple days, like day five, I am blessed, but it's a different kind of blessing. If I were to ask you what you complain about most, earthly blessings or spiritual blessings, I think you know what you'd say. 
But Ephesians 1.3 says that in Christ, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But typically our complaints and our concerns come with the fact of what we don't have in an earthly way. I don't have this relationship. I don't have this amount of money. I don't have this. And how quickly we forget the blessings we have in Christ, the spiritual blessings that are countless, that are to bring us joy, that I am chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that I am adopted and I am in his family forever irrevocably, that I am redeemed and freed from the slavery to sin and I am forgiven and cleansed from the brokenness that have come into my life. How often do we focus on that? Because if we would keep our eyes off of the earthly blessings which we have no control of because circumstances change and put our eyes on the spiritual blessings that are irrevocable and protected for us can never be taken away, we would have joy. Not happiness, joy. Happiness changes with circumstances. Joy helps you to abide in all circumstances. God intends for us to be blessed. He intends for us to have joy. And in Christ, I believe it is possible. And the goal of all of it is day six. Is it just to make you joyful? Is it just to give you an awesome life? Is it just to make sure you're not feeling lost? No, it is to give God glory. He brings life to me so that ultimately... I make much of him. In Christ, the image of the glorious God who is good and great and gracious is restored. And the question we all go is like, how do I, how do I experience that? And we'll be tempted to go back to the wrong day. We'll tend to go back to day six and go, well, I just need to reflect the image of God more. Seems weird. I'll go back to, to day five, and I'm just going to stop complaining and start being more joyful, right? Or go back to day four and say, well, I know the problem in my life. I know why I'm not having joy. I'm trying to figure it all out myself. I just need to follow the right paths. Or some will go back to day three. Oh, guess this is my lot. I need to get used to it. He's given me these limits and these boundaries. And others will go back to day two and celebrate their uniqueness. I'm special. When we really should start at day one and look at the light in Jesus Christ and let the other things fall into place. In the book of Revelation, Jesus declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Not Hey, behold, things are becoming new. Behold, I am making things new. And the newness that you desperately want in life begins with receiving Jesus Christ as the light from God. Shortly before he was crucified, well, he was arrested to be crucified, in John 12, Jesus said this, speaking to his disciples, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of the light. Catch that? 
While you have the light, believe in the light. They may become the sons of light. If you are lost, if you are despairing, if you don't know which path to take, if the definitions of the world and the chaos of the world is disturbing you, you need the light of Jesus in your life. And when that light comes in, it changes you from the inside out. God, who is light, directs us to His Son, who is light, to make us, guess what? Sons of light. The light of the world. City on a hill. That idea of being restored to restore is actually biblical. God intends to recreate us, bring light into our world, bring order into what is chaos, and then send us out into the world and say, there is a light that will shine in this darkness if you only believe. So my prayer is for us to look at the days a little differently. And as we come to the table to remind ourselves this, even now for those who have tasted the light, you are apt to put your toe and then your leg and then your body into darkness. The darkness is alluring. And we come to the table to remind us of the beauties and the glories of the light of the Son who came and shed His blood so that we would not. So that we would experience true satisfaction. So as we come, we are proclaiming that we are children, brothers and sisters of the light. But as we take that, we're also assuming a job. The responsibility to go be the light in this dark place. Whether it's in your home, in your neighborhood, in the city, wherever you are, you have that responsibility. God is the light. He sent His Son to be the light so that we would be sons of light. And we see the beauty of our recreation in the creation of Genesis 1. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the glories and the beauty and the power of Your Word. There is much to learn, Father, in what You have revealed. And I pray that as we open Your Word, we will not be overwhelmed by the particulars and the details, though I believe, Father, there's glory in those details, but we'll be motivated with a clear desire to learn about You. Would You speak to us through Your Word as You speak in creation? so that we can worship You with our hearts and our souls and our minds. We pray for better understanding, Lord, of this world. Father, help us not to make gods out of the gifts that You have given us. To not make a God out of even Your Word, as the Pharisees did. To not make a God out of, out of science, as many Christians apt to do. But help us, Father, to see these as gifts that are designed to work together for the purpose of giving you glory and giving us a deeper understanding of who you are so that we will desire to worship you more deeply. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.